You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So in 2006, We'd won marriage equality already in just a couple of states, a handful of states, uh, Massachusetts being the biggest and most important one, the biggest victory. And it seemed that after the defeats of 2004, when the Republican Party ran anti-same-sex marriage amendment campaigns in multiple states in an effort to help successfully reelect George W. Bush, it seemed like the momentum was shifting our way, that suddenly we were winning in the courts. Uh, marriage equality had been enacted in Connecticut by the legislature. Marriage equality had been passed in the California legislature and then vetoed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the then governor. But it had passed and it just seemed like ooh, the tide was turning. And there were two big state Supreme Court decisions that we were all waiting for, New York and Washington State. And there was this expectation that we were going to win these and that the momentum would continue to build toward marriage equality nationally. And in – New York, a decision was handed down in 2006, upholding the state's anti-gay marriage ban. And then the same thing happened in Washington state. Decision came down upholding the state where I live, our state's ban on same-sex marriage. And people were deflated and upset. And people worried that the tide, which had just felt like it was turning, was turning again and going back out. And I didn't see it that way. In fact, I wrote a couple of blog posts and an op-ed for the New York Times in which I said, we are winning. That even in these defeats, I could see our ultimate victory, our victory coming. Because in both these cases, Washington State and New York, the rationale that the justices laid out to justify these bans on same-sex marriage could be summarized with three words. Straight people suck. In both cases, the justices argued that in these states, liberal states, blue states, that they could ban same-sex marriage because straight people were terrible. Because literally, this, is, this was their argument, that only straight couples get pregnant by accident. Gay couples, we don't get pregnant by accident. You can't get drunk and adopt one night, right? You can get drunk and get knocked up one night. And so the states needed to reserve marriage for straight people exclusively as an inducement to get these irresponsible straight couples to take care of their children. And that if you allowed same-sex couples to also get married, that straight couples might be less likely to marry and take care of their children. So basically the argument was straight people are awful. They get pregnant. They're irresponsible. They get pregnant by accident. And if you let gay people get married too, then straight people are going to abandon their children on the side of the road to die. Straight people suck. And I thought in 2006, I looked at both of those decisions and I went – if this is the best they've got, that straight people are terrible, we're winning, and we are going to win this. And we did in the end. Which brings us to what happened in Houston last Tuesday. In 2014, the Houston City Council passed the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, or HERO, by a, a wide margin, 11 to 6. It was a good vote, good solid vote. The haters, with some judicial maneuvering and assist that was really kind of dodgy, put it on the ballot, forced it on the ballot, a referendum, allowing the voters to uphold or repeal HERO. And last Tuesday in Houston, voters repealed HERO. It failed at the ballot box. And people have talked about, you know, if you followed it at all in the mainstream media, you keep hearing that this was an LGBT civil rights ordinance. And that's not entirely true. The measure HERO, it did cover lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people. It also covered 
sex, race, national origin, age, religion, disability, pregnancy, genetic information, family, marital, and military status. It was an all-encompassing equal rights ordinance. And it failed. And the campaign that overturned it targeted, theoretically, trans people. It was all about men sneaking into bathrooms. The haters argued that there's essentially no such thing as a trans woman, that all trans women are, are straight men who want to sneak in, put on dresses, and sneak into women's restrooms to perv out on the women and girls in these restrooms. And the haters framed the vote as their campaign slogan was no men in women's restrooms. That was it. That was the argument that they used to successfully overturn Hero. Demagoguing about trans women in public bathrooms. But the argument, of course, was framed as there's no such thing as a trans woman. All these trans women are just faking, just straight men in dresses who want to go look at women in bathrooms. Not that you can see much of women in bathrooms. I'm a man. I'm a male. I'm comfortable. I'm a cisgendered man. I use men's restrooms. Uh, women's restrooms, the ones I've heard about, women all use stalls. So you, know, you don't really have an opportunity in a women's restroom to see naked ladies. It's not like a men's restroom where at the urinals you can, if you want to be creepy, look left, look right, and see the head of a dick every once in a while. You really can't see much in a women's restroom. But this campaign wasn't based on any sort of reality. The reality, of course, of women being attacked in women's restrooms is they're attacked not by trans women but by cisgendered men, as I have documented on my blog. No matter – this demagogic campaign in Houston was successful. They repealed Hero, convinced a majority of voters, the same voters who three times elected a lesbian in East Parker as the mayor. They convinced those very voters by demagoguing about creepy perverts in women's restrooms to repeal Hero. And a lot of people are really upset about this. And East Parker is really upset about this, particularly as she should be. People are picking apart the campaign but essentially, when you look at what they did in Houston, it's the exact same argument that in 2006, the haters successfully employed against marriage equality. The argument in Houston was straight people suck, not trans people are dangerous. They were arguing that trans people don't really exist. There's no such thing as a trans woman. There's just awful straight men. And that argument, straight people suck, it won the day in 2006 in Washington and New York. It didn't win the war. So we have to keep the defeat in Houston in perspective. It won the day in Houston. It won last Tuesday. It's not going to win the war against LGBT civil equality. We've demonstrated in the successful fight for marriage equality that we can defeat the straight people suck argument. It was a long fight and we lost other battles along the way, but we beat that bullshit argument back. And bear in mind also that the haters used to argue there's no such thing as a gay person either. There were just naughty straight people who were having same-sex sex for the laughs. They weren't really into it. They were just being naughty. They were choosing to be gay. They could just choose to be straight. That was one of the arguments. No such thing as a gay person. Their arguments now the same. No such thing as a trans person and straight people suck. Those arguments we ultimately defeated in the battle for marriage equality and we will defeat those arguments in the battle for trans-inclusive LGBT civil equality. I'm not arguing for complacency. We had to fight like hell to beat the straight people suck argument and the gay people don't exist argument against marriage equality. And we're going to have to fight like hell to defeat the straight people suck argument against trans-inclusive anti-discrimination laws. But we can and will defeat those arguments. We did it before. We'll do it again. The other thing I wanted to mention at the top of the show was the news out of Mormon land this week that – 
They will not baptize children with same-sex parents until they are 18 and the children move out of their same-sex parents' homes and renounce their same-sex parents' relationships and marriages. And I have really nothing to say about that except kids with straight parents should be so lucky as to have the Mormon church refusing to baptize them into adulthood. Because by the time you're 18, you're probably not going to fall for that line of bullshit. But I used up all my time at the top of the show talking about Hero. So yeah, Mormons. Yeah, voters in Houston. They'll come around. The Mormon church, who gives a shit? And now your calls. Hi, Dan. This is a mid-20s something woman. I identify as uh, mostly straight, um, but hadn't really ever done anything besides, you know, making out with a girl or, you know, a woman. Um, And uh, I'm dating this really, really wonderful man right now. Um, But uh, last night I uh, got really, really drunk with a friend who's a woman. And um, we've been friends for a long time and we both identify as as straight, but there's always been a little flirtation there. And... um, so I, now I I think we pretty much had sex last night, and um, I'm feeling pretty shitty. Uh, the man I'm dating is absolutely wonderful. He's he's so sweet, and we we have we have the best sex. And um, I'm trying to figure out what to do. Do I do I tell him what happened? Or do I do I keep it a secret? Do I let that you know let the lie stay with me and, and that be my burden? Or you know do I do I keep it a secret and tell him? You know, at some point that you know, when you talk about being in something more open, um, and and also my friend, I I don't want her to feel I don't want her to feel bad, you know, because she didn't do anything wrong. How long have you been dating this guy? Um, um about like ten months. Ten months. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so far, I, I've opted to just to to not tell him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Maybe in the in the future, talk to him about that. I I might need something more open. That's my plan right now. Okay. Funny enough, I I put you down in my on my Okay Cupid profile. I said you listen to Dan Savage Lovecast, you get extra points. So he asked me about it when we started dating, and I kind of told him monogamy is hard, and that might at some point want something a little more open and and I said but not right now and maybe in the future and and then we left it at that and then this happened and um I talked to my friend and she's kind of on board with uh just kind of letting it be it was a one-time thing um but you know it was also really fun so (laughs) okay well (laughs) my advice for you would be because it's only been 10 months to just let it lie and you know, if you do know, however, that openness is something you're going to want down the road, you're going to want to make that explicit early in the dating process. And it sounds like you did. You said, you know, uh, monogamy is hard and openness is something I'd want down the road, but not right now. And if this assignation with your friend was just a drunken slip up hookup and not something you intend to repeat and something that you regret, you can keep your mouth shut about it. That said, you then need to be prepared to forgive a similar slip up on his part if indeed one has happened early in your dating process and it ever comes to light. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be more than fair if something like that happened. It would just be nice to see more people talk about exclusivity as something you move toward in a relationship, that you move toward making an exclusive commitment, that you don't default to an exclusive commitment, so that anything that happens early on, like in the first 10 months, six months, that's a little blurred around the edges around exclusivity isn't a ticking time bomb that 
you know, when, when it's exposed or discovered is going to explode and ruin everything, but permissible acting out permissible scratching of itches or exploring of options early in a relationship before you move to that exclusive commitment. And under my preferred framework, your drunken hookup with your friend would be allowed. It would be permitted. It would be understood as something that happened before you guys drew a line and said, from now and for now, we're going to be exclusive. But the way people talk about dating, even casual dating, there's this assumption on many people's parts that if you're dating, as opposed to just having a hookup or you know a friends with benefits arrangement has been negotiated where there is no exclusivity, that it defaults exclusive. And I think that's not necessarily the way it ought to be. I, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And I guess I was just kind of, I think I was also maybe when I said that I was a little scared that that might scare him away. I said right away that I, I don't want something. But exclusive. you need to say that right away because you do know that about yourself. And for a lot of people, that's a deal breaker. That's like, I want kids or I don't want kids or I want marriage or I don't want marriage. I want lifelong monogamy or I don't want that is a card you need to lay on the table early in the dating process because you don't want someone to commit to you. And make a commitment to someone if you're not in agreement on that basic relationship fundamental. Hey, Dan, I'm a TSAV at-risk youth. I am a 28-year-old male living in Colorado, and I had a quick question about my girlfriend. We've been dating for about two years. Um, She moved from California out here to be with me after we met through a friend. And now she's kind of lonely. I'm kind of her only person in Colorado that she has. So um, I've been trying to get her out of the house and get her to be happy being around other people more. But um, she just seems to get upset anytime I have to work late, um, which is quite often being a teacher. Um, I also uh, have my brother here and occasionally want to spend time just one-on-one with him. And anytime I bring that up, it gets blown way out of proportion and a huge fight ensues. I was wondering if you had any advice for us on how to help her feel okay with me um, sometimes doing my own thing and uh, us not getting to spend every single second of my free time together. The advice I gave, the thing I muttered out loud before we started recording, which is really my honest advice from the gut. What I would say to you if you were my friend is break up with her. She's a little nuts. This kind of emotional manipulation, this aggression, this effort to control you masquerading as insecurity and vulnerability and the big sad typically doesn't get better. That this is a lever she's probably used to pushing and getting what she wants from people. And what she wants is exclusive rights to your time, all of it. And I think the only way for someone like this to understand that this isn't going to work, that they can't manipulate you personally, you, the caller, endlessly with these games, is for you to end it, for you to pull the fucking plug. And you can say to her, I would love to keep dating you, but not under these circumstances, not under these conditions. I have to be able to have alone time. I have to be able to work late. That's something that adults sometimes have to do without it being a fight. I sometimes am going to want to see other people without you there alone. I want alone time and time with my brother, time with my friends. And I will, when the time comes, when you've established some relationships in this town, which you won't do if it's just you and me all the time alone together, is I won't begrudge you that time with your friends. And 
my good friend Dan Savage reminds me that there are all sorts of studies out there that show that relationships where people are apart from each other, sometimes for significant chunks of time, for instance, vacationing separately, are stronger and more lasting. People need to go away from each other, have experiences and come back together. Absence makes the heart grow fonder as the cliche goes. So this strategy – us locked in a room alone together except for those moments when we absolutely positively have to be apart is a bad one if what we want is this relationship to last. So if that's the way it's got to be, let's just pull the plug now. That's what you should say to her. Let's end it now because it's going to end eventually if this is the way it's going to be. And you know what you should add when you say this to her? This is not the way it's going to be because I will not put up with this shit. If what you're afraid of is losing me, keep this up because this will cost you me. If you want us to be together, knock this the fuck off. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight female from Canada, and I'm thinking I identify as a bottom or masochist. I started experimenting with kink after I got out of a long-term relationship about a year or two ago, and I made the decision to separate kink and sex. So I'd go to a dungeon party about once a month, twice a month, and I would play publicly with trusted members of the community. After getting a beating, I'd go home and masturbate, and that was it. I'm now in a relationship with a wonderful man who is vanilla. He doesn't want me to go to dungeon parties because he thinks that he should be the one who gives me that kind of pleasure or pain, and he views kink within the realm of sex, and we are monogamous. I do not view kink and sex as the same thing, but I am respectful to his views. The thing is, he doesn't really quite understand the mentality behind kink and the kinds of dynamics that are involved. And I find it really hard to explain. His spankings are one or two here and there, when really what I want is a long and involved discipline or something along those lines. While super kinky sex is not something I need every night, I definitely want it to be something that I can ask for and get. I understand that patience is a huge part of introducing someone to kink. And I don't expect this to happen overnight, but I really look forward to the day when we can take off the training wheel, so to speak, and he can talk me without me having to instruct him on what to do. I've contemplated bringing him to a party so that we can both watch, and that is it. But I'm concerned it would be a bit of sensory overload for him. You say that you thought about bringing him to a party, but you worry about sensory overload. You don't say whether you've discussed this option with him, whether you've brought up going to one of these parties that he's forbidden you from going to and playing at and how he reacted when you suggested maybe you should bring him. Because I think that's a terrific idea for you to take him to a BDSM play party so that he can see what actually happens at them and that he can see that for a lot of people at a BDSM play party, although it is erotic, it's not quite sex. Sometimes it's a bit more like bowling. Everyone's enjoying their shared hobby and then retreating to their homes to have sex with their partners and what they're doing, the itch that they're scratching at these BDSM parties, although sex adjacent and erotic adjacent isn't necessarily sex itself in their personal experience and their subjective personal experience of it. And that might help him allow you to indulge at these parties and then come home to him. And he should, if he's listening, if you've turned him onto the, the love cast, if you go to this party alone, you used to go to the party alone and come home and furiously masturbate. Imagine what's in it for him if he can get to a place where he allows you to go to the parties alone because then you're going to come home to him and furiously – not masturbate, furiously fuck the shit out of him. So there's an upside potentially for him if he can wrap his head around you having these experiences that are indeed erotic 
and sex adjacent, but not quite sex. And then running home and pouring the sex all over his crotch. What you don't want to do is take him to the party and say, look at that guy there. Look what he's doing there. He's a good top. You suck at this. You should watch what he's doing and be better at it like he is. You shouldn't say that. That's likely to be what happens. You don't want to inflame his insecurities or give him performance anxiety or make him feel inadequate. But he's just growing into this. And it can help somebody who's growing into kink, particularly performance kink, like topping. See other people who've been doing it for a long time and are good at playing those roles. And it is role play. Sometimes before you can act in the play, you got to go to some theater. And you should perhaps frame it for him like that. I want you to play Hamlet. Let's go watch someone else play Hamlet first. That's how a lot of people learn to play Hamlet. Gilgood was a Hamlet, but before Gilgood was Hamlet, he watched other people be Hamlet. That's how being Hamlet works. But it sounds like he's willing to explore your kinks and willing to grow into them. Like I've said a million times in the podcast, you meet two types of people at kinky events. You meet people who were born kinky, like you, caller, and you meet people who fell in love with people who are kinky, like your boyfriend. So give him a little more time and... Convince him that you're committed to him if indeed you are going to commit to him. And then drag him to these parties and let him see how it is done. Hi, Dan. Something happened last week that I need your advice on, and I'll try to keep it brief. It involves me, my boyfriend, and a third guy who, for the sake of this story, I'll call Ben. A little backstory. My boyfriend and Ben have been friends for over 15 years, and my boyfriend and I have been dating for over seven. In the first year of our relationship, my boyfriend and Ben went to a mutual friend's out-of-town bachelor party, and while there, they ended up jerking off together. My boyfriend came home and told me. I was understandably surprised and hurt, but we worked through it and eventually established a sort of don't-ask-don't-tell policy where mutual masturbation outside the relationship is allowed. Despite this, I have kept Ben at a distance for years, having no interest in forming a friendship with someone who I feel didn't respect our relationship. This hurt my boyfriend very much that I wouldn't be friends with someone who he was close with. About six months ago, my boyfriend and I were visiting a large city where Ben lives. We ended up getting drinks with Ben, and while I still wasn't entirely a fan of him, my boyfriend was happy that after almost six years, I was finally forming a friendship with Ben. That brings me to this past weekend. My boyfriend and I were again visiting that large city and decided to stay with Ben. We slept in Ben's bed while Ben slept on the couch. Saturday night, the three of us went out drinking and dancing and returned to Ben's place around 3 a.m. I quickly fell asleep, but woke up in the middle of the night to see my boyfriend hadn't yet come to bed. I walked out into the living room to see if he had passed out on the couch and came upon my boyfriend with his pants around his ankles and Ben completely naked, masturbating each other. They were so engrossed in each other that they didn't even see me walk out. Rather than storming into the living room like a crazy person, screaming, get your dick out of my boyfriend's hand, I quietly crept back to the living room, or rather, the bedroom, grabbed my phone, returned to the living room, and took about 100 photos of them. They still don't know that I had those photos. After they finished, my boyfriend finally came to bed. I cuddled up with him and asked him if he and Ben had jerked off. His response was no. Ben had immediately passed out. I told my boyfriend that I was never going to marry him, that I could no longer trust him, and that I saw everything that happened. My boyfriend melted down. The next morning when we woke up, my boyfriend claimed to not have remembered anything from the previous evening after we had left the bar, although I later found out that that wasn't entirely true and that he did clearly remember what he had done. Finally, the next morning, we were about to depart and saying our goodbyes to Ben. 
I shook Ben's hand, thanked him for his hospitality, and then said, thank you for jerking off my boyfriend. It's done wonders for our relationship. And I walked out the door. My boyfriend was very upset, said that I had no right to say that, and that I ruined his his friendship with Ben. My boyfriend also says that he did nothing to violate our rules since he and Ben only jerked off, which I know is true since I watched the entire show. My response to him is that he shouldn't have jerked off with Ben considering the rocky history I have with Ben and the event from almost six years ago, which threatened our relationship before we had established our monogamish policy. Additionally, our don't ask, don't tell jerk off policy has always been applied when one of us is traveling out of town, not when the other partner is sleeping in the next room and could presumably be invited to join in on the fun. Finally, there's the deception. I understand why my boyfriend may not have wanted to be initially forthcoming with me considering my past with Ben, but had he been honest, I feel this wouldn't have been such a big deal. My question's for you, Dan. First, who is in the right? Should my boyfriend have been more considerate of my feelings in this situation, or should I have been more accepting of him jerking off with this individual, even if it's happening, quite literally, right in front of my face? Second, was I wrong to say anything to Ben before we walked out the door? Should I have been more considerate of Ben's hospitality and his friendship with my boyfriend? Is my main issue with my boyfriend, and should I have not even mentioned this to Ben? Finally, what advice do you have for me moving forward? I don't want to break up with my boyfriend, but I'm having a hard time working through feelings of anger, pain, and betrayal. Thanks for your help, Dan, and I love the show. It seems to me that what you need to do is send Ben a letter backdated to roughly six years ago, thanking him for jacking off with your boyfriend at the time and forgiving him and saying, you know, I was upset when I heard it first, but it provoked us. It led us to have a conversation about monogamishimi that we clearly needed to have and to carve out an agreement that allows for the sort of things that you two did together, the mutual masturbation. So I'm going to grandfather in that incident, that mutual masturbation, although not explicitly covered by our agreement at the time, we're going to grandfather it in, not grandfather it in, that wouldn't be the word. We're going to pretend that it was covered. We're just going to retroactively, that's the word I was looking for. We're going to retroactively cover that mutual masturbation incident under our current and brand new agreement about outside sexual contact being limited to mutual masturbation and a DADT agreement on top of that where we just don't talk about it. And you should thank Ben. You should thank Ben because presumably this agreement with your boyfriend around masturbating with other people occasionally being permissible has created joy in both of your lives. I assume that you've messed around with other people. I bet that if you hadn't, you would have mentioned that, that you had not ever acted upon this. You would have included that detail, but you did not. And so it's brought you joy as well as your boyfriend joy. And you both in a way, although it was unpleasant and a little bumpy when it happened, you both, you included, that you're included in you both, have been to thank for that. And you should have thanked Ben for that. Which brings us to the incident that you called about. <sighs> yes, your boyfriend came back to bed and lied. You do have a DADT agreement. Don't ask, don't tell. Sometimes that involves fudging. When people say, I don't want to be told, that sometimes means that if I ask a direct question or I ask a question that if you answer it honestly, the answer amounts to telling you fudge it. You don't answer necessarily completely honestly. 
you, you know, you're honoring the DADT agreement, which overrides the you must answer all my questions honestly default setting of relationships, although relationships aren't a deposition. And you do not have to answer every question honestly. And if you do answer every question completely honestly, no relationship is going to last longer than six months or so. So who is in the right? I don't think anyone's in the right here. I think that what your boyfriend did was a little fucked up because you were in the next room. And if he wanted a mutual masturbation session, he probably should have gone and invited you to participate, although that would have meant waking you up. So I don't think he was in the right. And you were not in the right either. When you walked in on them, you should have let them know you were standing there. And then maybe you would have gotten what you claimed to have wanted all along, which was an invitation to participate. Once they knew you were there, maybe they would have asked you to pull your dick out too and it would have turned into – maybe it would have turned into a regular Boy Scout camping trip right there in the living room. But you didn't do that. You stood there like a creeper and you started taking photographs, which was not right, which depending on what state you were in at the time that you did this may even have been illegal. So they broke your DADT agreement. You potentially broke the law when you took all these pictures of Ben and your boyfriend without their knowledge – with their dicks out. Were you wrong to say something to Ben? You weren't necessarily wrong. You were hurting. It was in, within your rights to say something. It was an assholey what you said and kind of confrontational and creepy. You know, you're tossing this bon mot at him on the way out of his house to make him feel terrible and mission accomplished. He feels terrible and you've screwed up, queered this relationship even more than it was already queered by this bad blood from six years ago. Advice on moving forward? <sighs> Pull the stick out of your ass. Chill the fuck out. Your boyfriend has a history with this guy that includes some mutual masturbation. Who would you rather your boyfriend enjoy mutual masturbation, which is permitted under your monogamish agreement? Who would you rather he enjoy mutual masturbation with? Strangers in bushes and parks and bathhouses that he knows nothing about? That you know nothing about? Or this Ben guy who clearly isn't a threat to your relationship? Despite your trying to inflate these incidents of mutual masturbation into a threat, if Ben and your boyfriend wanted to be together, they would fucking be together. Ben and your boyfriend have known each other longer than you've known your boyfriend. If they wanted to be together, they would be together, but they're not together. They have a friendship with a tiny erotic component to it. Some jacking off together every once in a while. Allow for it. Not allowing for it is just creating conflict between you and your boyfriend that is unnecessary, opt-in conflict, because you bear a grudge against Ben. For what? Yes, the incident many, many years ago was on its face, fundamentally disrespectful of your relationship, then monogamous. But again, it prompted you and your boyfriend to have a conversation that you and your boyfriend needed to have about honesty, about monogamy, about disclosure. And your relationship was better and more honest and in a stronger place after the Ben incident. It just seems to me that you're one of those people whose partner cheated on them. Let's just say that your boyfriend cheated on you when he jacked off with Ben. Cheated on you. Absolutely. But you wanted to stay with your boyfriend. So you just took all of your anger and you rolled it up into a ball and you threw it all at Ben. Because that made it possible for you to stay with your boyfriend. Not angry at your boyfriend anymore. Oh, so angry at Ben. And that's unfair to Ben. Ben deserves his fair share of your anger. But I think at this stage, at some point in the last six years, Ben also deserved his fair share of your forgiveness. And if you can't forgive Ben, 
And if you can't forgive your fucking boyfriend, do them both a favor and then both of these relationships. Break up with your boyfriend and then you have no relationship with Ben anymore either. Hey, Dan, I live in a large city on the East Coast. And uh, while I was on a dating app, my good friend's girlfriend's profile popped up. It was a bit suspect in that she said she was only looking for people who are just visiting the city and just looking for short-term hookups. I should not tell my friend about this, right? I don't think they have an open relationship, but I don't know. And I don't know if she's actually met up with anyone. I just saw my friend the other day, and he was telling me about how amazing his girlfriend was. Uh, Anyway, I'm guessing you're going to tell me this is none of my business, but I just want to double-check because I don't want to be a jerk to my friend. A couple of quick questions about your friend and his girlfriend. How How long have they been dating? They've been dating, I'd say, about a year and a half. Do they have a monogamous commitment? To your knowledge, that, that's the thing. I thought I thought so. Yes, I mean, to my knowledge, they've never said anything otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess what? Like, I just wish, like, when I, when I saw like you know her profile, that it said something that like, hey, I'm in a relationship, but you know it's open, or we're looking for something. But she seemed to go out of her way to, you know, like looking for people who aren't in town for very long, etc. Yeah, which is highly you know, suspect. Which made me feel- I mean, there are some people who have yeah. open relationship agreements and DAAT agreements where one of the, you know, one of the items in their agreement is nobody who lives in town so that there can be no relationship that forms. Uh, So, you know, apps like Tinder have made it possible for a lot of people to have that kind of open relationship where it can't be anybody who lives in our time zone. Um, So that is not threatening potentially. So you're not going to date this person Mm -hmm. or see them more than once. That said, it is kind of suspect. So now let's play. Let's pretend you've been dating a girl for a year and a half you have a monogamous commitment. Your friend sees her online. Your friend who doesn't know for sure whether you have a monogamous commitment sees her online trawling for dick. Right. <laughs> Would you want your friend to tell you? Ah, oh, I know. It sounds like just a horrible situation. Um, I guess so. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I would like to know. Okay. Well, then yes. this falls into the do unto others as you would have them do unto you column. Right. Where if you would want to be told, then you might want to tell in this circumstance. That said, the first thing I would do before I told, though, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many caveats here. The first thing I would do is have <laughs> a roundabout conversation with your friend about relationships to try to get out of him whether or not they have an exclusive commitment sexually. Yeah, that was my thought to say, like, hey, I came across this girl. I'm like, okay, keep it. And she said, you know, she's in an open relationship. And that sounded pretty cool. And she seemed pretty open about, you know, and like honest. And mm-hmm. that seemed very healthy. Then to kind of see, like, maybe if he'd, you know, be like, oh, hey, I'm in one as well, you know, or something. He might say that um, if he's in one. He also might say, I would never agree to that, even if he's in right. one. Because a lot of people, particularly opposite sex couples yeah. who are in open relationships, who are not open or out about it and will deny right. it to other people that they assume are who might disapprove or they just have an agreement that that even can be part of a DADT agreement that we are socially monogamous, yeah. we're not sexually monogamous. So we are invested in being perceived to be monogamous, which means we tell people we're monogamous. Right. Even if we're not. What, what really, yeah. Yeah. And what really sucks is that they live together and they work together. Oh my God. And so it's really like, I don't, I, I guess my fear is like, I don't want to blow up his life, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, like I don't know. I think like she might even be his boss in some way. I don't know. Like it could just 
Uh, this is a really tough one because I, I, you know, I try to err on the side of mind your own business, but friends have responsibilities to each other. And sometimes that responsibility can include something as unpleasant as being the bearer of bad news, walking something into the room and saying, I'm sure you don't want to hear this and this is going to blow up your life potentially, but you might need to hear this before you, you know, continue having unprotected sex with this person, before you right. propose to this person, before you make a baby with this person and scramble your DNA together forever. That's a very good point. And I would want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got your uh, back, bro. Uh, and, you know, who knows what kind of conversation that might provoke between the two of them. You know, we, we talk about these kinds of circumstances as if the only outcome is divorce or an explosion, you know, the end of the relationship and the building's all pulled down and the earth salted and nothing grows there for a thousand years. Like, you know, any relationship that this happens to is Carthage two weeks later. Right. And yeah, no, absolutely. That ain't necessarily so. Sometimes an infidelity is exposed or this kind of, you know, who knows, maybe she just likes to fantasize about fucking around with other guys and the pictures she gets and the flirtation she gets boosts her ego and she masturbates about it. And that's as far as it goes. But that conversation with her boyfriend, you know, in the wake of the exposure, can get mm-hmm. them to a place where they're more honest with each other about who they are and what they want. And unfortunately, you know, the bearer of bad news, the person who helped them get to that place where the relationship is more honest and on a better footing going forward and they stay together, that person is often executed at dawn. That relationship ends. Right. Yeah. You know, she may go to, <laughs> they may end up staying together and have a better, more honest relationship. And rather than looking at you and saying, thank you for helping us get there, they look at you and think, fuck you, bearer of bad news. Yeah. That's, that's what I worry about in some ways, you but know, it, selfishly, I guess. But as a friend, uh, I think that's know. a price you have to be willing to pay. Right. And yeah, no, I think you're right. So boiling down, I, I've been all over the, I've been all over the place on this call, I think. But boiling your advice down, <laughs> suss out your friend on the yeah. topic of monogamy. Talk mm-hmm. about whether you would ever be in a non-monogamous relationship. If he says I would never be in a non-monogamous relationship, dun dun dun. Then <laughs> right. you might have to just cop to it and say, I'm not saying your girlfriend's cheating. And there's a lot of people who are on hookup apps who are just flirting and it turns them on and they're not acting on anything. That's why people talk about flakes and fakes all the time with online mm, dating. No, absolutely. So you, I think yeah. you should, you should include that in your advice to your friend or, you know, in the news, in the bad news that, you know, you didn't fuck his girlfriend. And as far as you know, no one else has fucked his girlfriend either. And there are lots of people on Tinder who don't want to get fucked. They just want to know that people would fuck them. And then he can have a conversation with his girlfriend about that. No, that's that's good. Yeah, I think I should throw a lot of caveats. And now the last thing. So, like when I came, when I when it came across my phone, I I kind of freaked out. So I took a just in case if I did bring it up to him, like I wanted to like have proof. So I took a screenshot of it. Like should I show him the screenshot just in you know in case you you know if I told him and then he went to her and she's like, what are you talking about? He's lying or something. Good thing to have in like, your pocket. Yeah. Okay. But I wouldn't lead, uh, I wouldn't lead with it. I wouldn't go. See. Yeah. No. No. I'd rather not <laughs> show it. Have it in backup. If she, you know, if she points a finger at you and accuses you of lying. And are you sure it's her? Positive? Oh, 100%. Like 100%. Yeah, it's her. All right. Like it's the full face? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Full face, like her job description. Um, Like, yeah, the description that she wrote is just like something she would say. Right. Um, but who knows? Maybe he's going to turn around and tell you that they have an open relationship or... 
They like have three so. ways, or she cuckolds him and he turns them on. You never know what he's going to say. Yeah, yeah. But no, you, that's very true. You gotta, you gotta ovary up and okay. be, be a friend. Ova up and be his friend and go tell him. Yeah, no, that's fair. Good. Yeah, because I just wasn't sure if, you know, like you said in the past, sometimes it's better just to mind your own business because I don't know what the relationship is like. But it's just like, yeah, there's just something that rubbed me the wrong way, the way she like put up her profile that, you know. Sometimes the mind your own business stuff is case by case determination. Yeah. You know, if your parents have been together 35 years and you find your father on a hookup site, you don't know what their relationship is like. You don't know, you know, what accommodations have been made or what allowances or what what blind eyes have been actively turned that you know what sort of agreement not to confront every issue has made it possible for your parents to stay together that long and you should mind your own fucking business and stay the hell out of your parents sex life but friends friends i think it's a little bit different i think you gotta look out for each other particularly prior to marriage and the scrambling of dna together yeah that would suck if like they you know, yeah, if they're like a pregnancy was involved suddenly or something, and then, you know, then it all came to pass that, you know, there's a lot of cheating or something. So that's a really good point. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you. Well, good luck. All right. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old straight female on the East Coast. I have a question about disclosure. I know it's something you're usually a proponent of, but I am wondering about disclosure of past infidelities. I seem to meet a lot of men who have been cheated on, and they tell me about their ex-wife or ex-girlfriend or whomever, and they tell me that she's a terrible person, and they have this once-a-cheater-always-a-cheater attitude, and I can't blame them because being cheated on totally sucks. The thing is that I have been unfaithful in the past, and it's really not something I'm proud of. Um, I went to therapy. My then partner and I went to therapy together. We worked through it. We stayed together for another five years. And we eventually split ways because of the underlying sexual incompatibility that sort of led to my infidelity. Not trying to give myself a free pass by any means. Just trying to say it wasn't a situation where I had a thrill-seeking personality or, you know, I, I just, I don't see this as something that's part of my future. So do I owe it to someone new to be totally honest about this part of my past? I also recently, I told uh, a boyfriend about what I had done. And then when he cheated on me, he used it against me and basically said I had no right to be upset and that I was being a hypocrite, which really sucked. And I don't, maybe I did deserve it. I don't know, but I just, I'm not sure how to navigate this situation. If I should be disclosing this to someone I wonder then how soon into a relationship and how to bring it up. It's a really awkward, sort of shameful thing to have to tell someone if indeed you think I should be telling someone. I don't think you owe it to someone new to disclose a past infidelity or infidelities. Maybe that's something you're going to want to share with them once you get to know them better and you're laying all your cards on the table and you're until you get to that point where you're really bearing souls, your souls to each other, and you want to point out those black and grained spots, maybe. But if you're going to be unfairly judged, I don't think you are obligated to disclose. And if someone you're with is so insecure that they can't hear that without judging you, making assumptions that may not be true, it may be kinder to not disclose that information. If you're sure you're never, ever going to do this again, if that's what you learned when you had a routine early in your life, bullshitty 
messy breakup, which is often what those cheats are when people have not yet married, had children, settled down. That cheat is just a messy, blurry breakup that the cheat was slamming the hand down on the self-destruct button in an effort to kind of get out of the relationship by exploding it. Because when people are young, they have a hard time cleanly ending relationships, a hard time dumping people. And people often would rather be dumped than do the hard work of dumping. And so they will engineer their dumping by being shitty, by being awful, by being unpleasant, sometimes up to and including the awfulness and unpleasantness of cheating on that person so that they will dump you, sparing you the horror of having to dump them. And so sometimes, you know, we lump all infidelities together into the same pile as if they're all equal and they're not all equal. Your husband fucked your sister on your wedding night. Yeah, that's an infidelity that probably cannot be forgiven. We shouldn't lump that together with got a hand job on a business trip 30 years into a marriage. Not the same thing by degree, by any, by any measure, not the same thing. And those early messy cheats when young people are just learning how to date and mate and learning how to be honest, I wouldn't lump those in with – the betrayals of an adulterous affair in the context of a committed, monogamous, very serious and consequential relationship, which is what people tend to do. So long way of saying, no, you do not have to disclose this. I would hope myself that I could be in a relationship with someone where I could disclose this sort of thing and not be unfairly judged for it and that I would be with somebody who is secure enough to hear that without going to pieces and without then being completely paranoid about where I am all the time. That said, however, there is a little research out there that shows the old maxim, once a cheater, always a cheater, that there's some truth to that. Not a lot of truth to that. Once a cheater, slightly statistically more likely to cheat again in the future. That's not a guarantee that the once a cheater will always cheat and will cheat on everyone that they have ever been with. There is a difference between someone who cheated, past tense, and someone who's a serial adulterer or a cad or a cadet. You know what you are and what you are not. And hopefully the person you're with, two, three, four years into the relationship, when you get to that place of radical honesty and recreational, radical self-exposure, will know you well enough and be secure enough in the relationship that they can hear that without going to pieces. We're going to take a brief break from the calls because I want to talk to Deborah So. She's a sex researcher and neuroscientist at York University in Toronto. She's also a writer and has contributed pieces to Harper's Pacific Standard, The Independent, and other publications. And she recently wrote a piece that I wanted to talk to her about for Salon. Hey, Deborah, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Welcome to the Death Threat Club. I saw on your Twitter feed that after this piece went up that you got your first death threats, and that's just so charming. I can remember my first death threats. They were so long ago. I have them framed on my Um, wall. I bet it was a special time. (laughs) So you wrote a piece called The Pedophile I Could Not Help. He was not a monster or a molester. The system destroyed him anyway. Can you tell us uh, briefly about the piece? Yeah, so I was inspired to write the piece after reading Todd Nickerson's piece in Salon. So um, I work very closely with Dr. James Cantor. Uh, You've previously interviewed him on your show. He's an international expert on pedophilia research. And so I've had a lot of experience working with pedophiles. Um, And so when I read Todd Nickerson's piece and I saw the backlash that he experienced, I felt compelled to write mine in support of him. Um, I feel it was really brave what he did. And And, also I think... Well, tell us who Todd Nickerson was and what his piece was about. Um, so Todd Nickerson is a gold star pedophile. 
he um, has never molested a child. He also doesn't uh, view child porn. And he's also doing the very best he can not to ever molest a child. Um, and so he wrote this piece to say, you know, that it's very difficult for non-offending pedophiles to receive the help that they are asking for so that they don't offend. This is a hard concept for a lot of people to understand. And Gold Star mm-hmm. Pedophile is actually a, an honorific that I coined in my column in reference to these guys I was getting heartbreaking letters from who were pedophiles yes. but not child molesters. And that's something that a lot of people have to think about for a second. Not all pedophiles are child molesters. Just as, as you point out in your piece for Salon, not all child molesters are pedophiles. That a lot of uh, child molestation are crimes of opportunity and people who are not under the influence, yeah, under the influence or crazy or going after family members, um, but are not actually clinically pedophiles. And so you have child molesters who aren't pedophiles, but you have pedophiles who are not child molesters who've never offended. And I would hear from these guys, and these letters were heartbreaking because they were struggling in isolation to prevent themselves mm-hmm. from acting on these urges, knowing that they would risk their lives, that they would risk complete destruction if they sought out help, if they went to a therapist and tried to talk about this. And so as James Cantor has sort of argued very uh, persuasively, what we know about pedophiles, we know about pedophiles who've offended because they're the ones who wind up in treatment programs. They're the ones that researchers study. What we don't know Mm -hmm. about are pedophiles who have never offended. And it would be very helpful to know what the difference is because that would help us help pedophiles who haven't offended to not offend ever. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, as I've said in my article, you know, imagine what it'd be like if you couldn't have sex with anyone. It's very difficult to remain celibate through life, and especially so without any support. And as you mentioned, with mandatory reporting laws, they do make it very difficult for someone to come forward before having, um, you know, molested a child because they run the risk if they have kids of their own or if they have access to kids, they will have to be reported to the authorities. See, I've gotten, I got a lot of grief and even, I believe, a death threat or two when I said gold star pedophiles because people want to understand, people can't understand how you could feel empathy for a pedophile. And my response to that always is if we could empathize with pedophiles who have not offended, you know, due to their plight, it might help us actually protect children. This isn't ultimately for me about how do we make the world a kinder, happier place for pedophiles, but how do we make the world a safer place for children? And one of the ways we can make the world a safer place for children is to help pedophiles who haven't offended to not offend. And just chasing them around rhetorically or literally with pitchforks and torches is not the way. Exactly. The more we stigmatize the problem, it doesn't help. And um, not having a discussion, not having a rational discussion about it also doesn't help. I, I totally understand where people are coming from because it is a very emotionally charged topic. It's very controversial. Um, but with anything, we have to take a very rational. And, and, and I understand, and I, as I'm sure you do, that why people are so, why it's such an emotionally charged topic. I'm a parent. I have a kid. You know, I, you would you hear about things happening to little children when your children are little, and you can't, you know, in your mind's eye, your your imagination goes right to that happening to your kid, and you have this visceral, exactly. violent reaction. But 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 it's important for people to remember that you're having this visceral, violent reaction to a pedophile who offended. And what we want to make the world, we, we want to have in the world is, you know, we're always going to have a certain number of pedophiles out there. It's right. a sexual orientation. It's not anything anyone chose. And we exactly. want them to not offend. And so we have to set aside our visceral reaction to those mental images, particularly those of us who are parents, if we want our children to be safer, if we want our children to be safe from pedophiles. 
Exactly, because the current system, the way it's set up, it's not helping us make society safer. It's not helping us protect children. It's actually making things a little bit more difficult for that to happen. Now, tell us about the pedophile that you wrote about, the one who was not a monster or a molester and the system destroyed. I have to admit that when I read that headline, I imagined Mm -hmm. that the pedophile you were trying to help, as many do, killed himself. And that's not what happened. Can you tell us what happened? No. So I wrote about Jacob. He was a very young, intelligent man that I came across when I was doing this research. And um, I just want to say, I think there was some confusion. I think uh, part of the reason why people were quite um, upset with the article is that they feel I'm saying that Jacob was not guilty of a crime or of an offense. And I'm not saying that. He was definitely guilty of an offense. He was guilty of luring a minor. And um, had he met an actual child instead of an undercover police officer, I'm pretty sure he would have gone ahead and uh, molested a child, unfortunately. So what I was saying with my piece was if the system had been different, he would have been able to access um, help before any of this happened. Mm -hmm. And so his life wouldn't have been ruined. Um, Do you think, Jacob, if we had had a system where there were services in place for pedophiles that they could access without mandatory reporting resulting in their lives being destroyed or them being imprisoned, Do you think Jacob would have reached out first for those kinds of services before he attempted to lure a child? Definitely. I mean, he was seeing a counselor before this happened, and he couldn't afford to continue seeing the counselor, but he was very desperate. He was seeking help. He was doing his best not to offend. Uh, He worked in jobs where he had access to children, and he actually quit those jobs because he didn't want to be tempted. Um, And when he was actually arrested, he said he felt relieved because he knew now he'd be able to get the help that he wanted. Mm. Um, as well as what I mentioned um, in my article with Prevention Project Dunkelfeld, um, this is a program in Germany where they offer free confidential support to pedophiles, um, support over the phone or in person. And it's been very successful already at lowering child sexual abuse. So Germany has what you and I think would both like to see the United States have, which is confidential support services and support services doesn't mean rah rah go girl although some people seem to think that that's what we mean when we talk about support services for pedophiles it's a support to not offend yes exactly and everything is framed along the obviously ethical only position which is that these are desires that can never be acted upon yes exactly so in therapy you know they will identify a clinician will identify with their patient you know what are your risk factors what is what situations are risky for you where you know it's more likely that you will offend? How can we avoid these situations? What kind of coping strategies can we give you so that you don't offend? Um, and also to help work, uh, you know, change cognitive distortions around um, having sexual uh, relations with children. Uh, these are all things that kind of lead towards the propensity to offend against a child. Now, this is a subject, pedophilia, that. Any attempt to write about it or think about it or to speak out loud about it with any nuance or empathy is just so dangerous, so risky. And what you say is going to be misconstrued. I could Google myself in pedophilia now and find a million people online saying I'm pro-pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. I'm, Same with me. <laughs> because I empathize with pedophiles who don't offend and I want more pedophiles. I want all pedophiles not to offend. I think we can learn something yeah. from pedophiles who haven't, blah, blah, blah. We've already said that. Is this something you're going to continue to write about despite the blowback and despite the inability of the people who are freaking out about articles like yours to actually hear what you're saying as opposed to just flipping out at you about the topic? Definitely, because my writing, um, I mean, some of it has been deemed controversial. I never write for the purpose of being controversial. Um, I said, you know, I think it's really important for us to value science over ideology and over popular opinion. 
So, you know, for with pedophiles in particular, it's a, it's a topic that people view as being very black and white. So either I think you think that these men are horrible monsters who deserve to be locked up forever, or, you know, you're pro-pedophilia and you think that child molestation is great. And that's not the case, you know, and with my piece, I was saying, you know, there are shades of gray in between, um, and especially doing the kind of work that I've done, you there'll be times where you will feel, because this is another human being sitting across from you, you know, you will feel empathy for them. They're still a person. They're struggling with something. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm definitely not, I've not been shy off of this topic at all. I'm glad to hear that. Deborah W. So, sex researcher, neuroscientist at York University. Look for her work at Harper's Pacific Standard, the Independent Salon, and other publications. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Deborah. I hope you'll join us again. Thank you for having me, Dan, and thanks for allowing me to clear the air on this topic. Hey, Dan. I am a 25-year-old straight-ish male. Um, I have never been with a guy. I have never made out with a guy. I have never had any sexual contact with a guy. But the older that I get and the more I'm starting to understand myself, I realize that I am attracted to men. And I don't know how far I would want to take it. Maybe just a little making out. Anyway, the point of the story, I just got back from a trip from Colorado. And during that trip, I went out to the bars Saturday night. I ended up getting kind of picked up by four gay guys, went back to their house and we drank and smoked and it was awesome. Uh, the day after I get on an airplane and I'm sitting next to a gay man who I had a wonderful conversation with, but made me really uncomfortable. He told me he liked me in every way, but trying to diddle my butthole. Anyway, I just walked out of a, out of a store. I'm shopping and there's a guy behind the counter and there was chemistry. There was attraction there. How do I be okay with this? I'm, I'm totally sexually positive and progressive and open-minded and I'm starting to lean towards heteroflexible, but this is also really scaring me because this is a new part of my sexuality that I'm just discovering help a straight guy be okay with making out with dudes every once in a while. Thanks. Jesus Christ, dude, suck a dick already or let somebody suck your fucking dick already. The universe is throwing men in your path and you are curious about what it might be like to mess around with a dude. So what you say to the next four gay dudes you go home with or the next gay dude you sit next to on a plane or the next guy who tries to pick you up in a retail environment is that you have no experience, that you've been pretty much straight identified all your life and comfortable with that, but increasingly you're tapping into your own head of reflexibility. You don't present yourself as potentially a life partner. You're not gay identified. You, you're probably just interested in men in a physical way for all you know at the moment. So don't falsely misrepresent yourself. Don't give anybody false hopes about any romantic potential. But a little roll in the hay, a little roll around, a little suck off the up until this point straight identified guy. There's a lot of gay guys who would happily sign up for that. You're probably sitting next to one on a plane recently. So go for it. Go for it safely. Keep anal sex off the menu. Anybody that you're with, just say you've never messed around with a guy before. You don't even know if you get off on kissing a guy. But you're curious. And then they get to decide whether they want to help you satisfy that curiosity. And nobody who's out and gay and an adult is going to meet somebody who is in your position, which will soon be prone if you have any luck, 
and expects that they're going to marry this guy. This is somebody that you're going to have a little fun with and that everyone, you know, you'll create some more joy in the universe, right? And then they get to decide whether they want to help you, help you out, help you see if messing around with dudes is something that you're up for. All that said, flight club. There are three rules of flight club. Shut your fucking mouth on the airplane. I'm sure the people you should be most concerned about offending are not the gay guys you might want to get with, who obviously want to get with you. They keep jumping out at you. But everybody on that plane who had to endure listening to you and the gay dudes sitting next to you yammer away about whatever the fuck you were talking about for the entire goddamn flight. This is just a personal pet peeve of mine. I'm taking a, a moment of personal privilege here to rant about people on airplanes who won't shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up on airplanes. Three rules of flight club. Shut your mouth, close the goddamn window shade, and shut your fucking mouth. The third rule just really reemphasizes the importance of the first rule by sticking in the F-bomb. Shut your mouth, close the window, shut your fucking mouth. The most loathed people on airplanes after infants and terrorists are talkers. Shut the fuck up. Hi, Dan. I just had a question for you. I just came back from a chiropractor visit, initial visit, and it was a pretty thorough intake. And I had written in the intake that I'd had a recent abortion three months ago. And um, the chiropractor said, like, uh, he said, um, well, that little soul must have had something to tell you or or had something to do with you know, possibly a lot of the complications that you're experiencing in your lower back. And I just got so offended. And I wanted, I just wanted to just tell him like, F you, like little soul. Like, I don't think that it that way. I don't know what your religious beliefs are, or if you're trying to be foo-foo or some spiritual realm, but that is not how I interpreted it. And I was so upset and angry at him for putting those beliefs in. Anyway, I just wanted to know if I was in the wrong, and if not, if I should communicate how unprofessional I felt this was. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Jen Gunter. She's a San Francisco Bay Area-based OBGYN, and she's a writer, and you should be following her on Twitter, where she's an awesome caller of bullshit, and she recently called bullshit on, of all people, Dr. Ben Carson, which... There's a lot of bullshit there, but what she bullshit called him on was something pretty spectacular uh, and went to the heart of his hypocrisy. Dr. Jen Gunter, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Quickly run us through uh, what Ben Carson did and what you called him on. Sure. Well, Ben Carson, uh, when the whole Planned Parenthood uh, videos were these clandestine and illegally shot, for the most part, videos were being released. And manipulatively uh, and dishonestly edited. Right, exactly. Uh, when these were released, he made a comment about fetal tissue research saying basically that, you know, no good has really ever come of it and it's unnecessary. And I would like to point out that we have the polio vaccine because of fetal tissue research. Um, and Dr. Carson would have learned a lot of anatomy because people had looked at fetal tissue research. But I decided since Ben Carson was applying for a job to be the president that I should look at his CV, which also included any publications he'd written. And I found a publication where he had, in fact, you know, was an author on a publication where fetal tissue research was done using specimens from an aborted fetus. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so I found that a little hypocritical. Um, but, but I, I actually find it a little distressing that 
you know, with all of these campaign reporters out there covering this campaign and with Carson, who is fundraising off these manipulatively edited, dishonestly edited bullshit Planned Parenthood videos and screaming and yelling about fetal tissue research with all of these campaign reporters and all of these publications following this campaign, his campaign, the Republican nomination campaign, that it was an OBGYN, an awesome one in San Francisco who took time out of her day and her practice to go dig this shit up. Yeah, you know, it was a bit um, disheartening to me that no one had really looked at it before. I mean, when someone's applying for a job, you should look at, especially this job, um, you should look at everything they've done. Um, And I think that maybe it speaks to the fact that there aren't enough reporters anymore with medical background. People are stretched too thin. Several people told me that, you know, because it was behind a paywall that they couldn't get it. And, And that's really disheartening to hear that, you know, for want of $30, you know, somebody can't you know, get some important information. All right. Now let's talk about this call. Yes. So she got, she was upset and angry about the comments that her awful chiropractor made, which amounted to there's a ghost fetus in your body, kicking the shit out of your spine or something. This angry ghost fetus, he's blaming her back pain on her having gotten this abortion. There's this little soul. Was she in the wrong to be angry and upset about his comments? I, I, I bet I could guess where you're going to come down on this, but I'm going to ask was she in the wrong? Sure, absolutely not. What he said was horrible and um, and just completely inappropriate, not only on a compassionate level, but on a medical level. Um, there's absolutely no data linking abortion with negative health sequelae of any kind. Maybe chiropractors don't learn about that in school, but we certainly do in medical school. Um, but to, you know, to say something like that to a patient, you, you don't ever impose your own beliefs or your own religious fantasies or whatever that was on somebody. You have somebody who's coming to see you and they're vulnerable. And actually, it it speaks to the fact that studies tell us the way women are harmed most by abortion is by false stigma. That actually hurts women, as hurt this caller, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just complete, complete gibberish, BS, I mean, absolutely no basis whatsoever. So it's garbage and she's every right to be angry and upset. Clearly, though, based on her comments, she said nothing in the moment. She didn't confront him. She didn't tell him to go fuck himself. She didn't kick him in the spine. Should she say something now and to whom should she say it? Well, you know, if if I were in that situation, I would probably write a letter of complaint to the governing body for that person. But that, you know, that takes a lot. You know, in in the moment, it's very hard to confront somebody when there's a when there's a power differential, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's really hard to speak up. And it's you know, as soon as you leave the office, you know, whenever you have any negative interaction, you think of all the wonderful things you wanted to say. Now add that to the power differential of being in the office with somebody who's holding themselves out as a professional who's probably older than you and, you know, has just inappropriately reinforced stigma, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're really in a disadvantage. But I think that if this, if this has, if this is bothering her, then, um, you know, writing a letter because I think it's really, it's an unprofessional thing to do. Um, and what I you think said that, was right, a professional I, thing. Yeah, you don't ever, ever tell somebody anything like that. Um, and, but, you know, I think that maybe 
talking to her own doctor maybe also might be helpful to find the real cause of her back pain. Um, you know, uh, most of it's muscle pain, but there can be other things too. And so that might also help her get some closure is to actually find out the real cause of the problem. But you can go out on a limb here and assure us that it's not ghost fetuses zipping around the country hurting people's backs. I can 100% definitively say that, yes. Dr. Jen Gunter, San Francisco Bay Area OBGYN and writer. You should be following her on Twitter. She's amazing. And you are at, where are you on Twitter? Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Jen Gunter. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Dan. I have a question about when sex dies in a relationship. I was with my ex-boyfriend for about two years. About six months into our relationship, sexual activity began to slow down drastically. This mainly came from my end. I've never been in a long-term relationship where I've managed to have a fulfilling sex life. I don't enjoy penis and vagina sex for the most part, especially with well-endowed men, which describes my ex. At first, when our sex life began to dwindle, I tried reading books, some of which he bought for us, about rekindling sex in a long-term relationship and even saw a sex therapist. I eventually gave up because I lost my job and my motivation, and I felt like I was unsuccessful and alone in trying to save our sex life. Eventually, I broke it off with him. Since then, I've short-term dated a few different people and started using my vibrator during sex, as well as trying role-playing. This has improved sexual experiences for me. I've never gotten over my ex. I still love him and compare all new men I date to him. Like you, I don't believe in the one or soulmates, but there's still something very strong between us, and I wonder if I incorporated my new skills into a rekindled relationship with him. We could make it work long-term. It's been two years since we were together, and I haven't stopped regretting breaking up with him. Do you think it's possible to kickstart a relationship after sex dies? You've got nothing to lose by calling your ex-boyfriend and saying, you know, in the time that we've been apart, I've grown, I've learned a bit more about what works for me sexually, I know myself better, and I think we could make it work. I think I could be a better partner to you. I think our sex life could revive. So if you're willing to give it another go, give me a buzz. Let's talk. Let's go out on a date. Let's see if we can do this thing. That said, if penis and vagina sex was hugely important to your ex-boyfriend and that's what the disconnect was about and that's what your sexual growth is about, that you've realized that PIV does not work for you, that is not something that you enjoy and what works for you is vibrators and role play and some form of outer course, he might not be willing to settle for that. That may not be enough for him. And you'll still have this sexual disconnect. You'll still be at this impasse. But you can lob that ball into his court and he can decide whether he wants to lob it back. And we don't know how he feels about that or I don't know. You know. You were in that relationship with him when the wheels came off. You know what he was upset about missing as your sex life fell apart and what he was asking you about in sex therapy or counseling or what he was bringing you books about. But if PIV wasn't important to him either, if outer course and rolling around and role play and vibrators and cunnilingus and blowjobs and whatever else you're down for and capable of and excited about is enough for him, give him the opportunity to say yes. Be open to yes. Take yes for an answer if the answer is yes. But if the answer is no, if what he wants sexually includes PIV, penis and vagina, and that's not something that you enjoy. And there are women out there who just don't enjoy PIV, who are treated like there's something terribly, terribly wrong with them and they're terribly, terribly damaged. And the whole industry of sex therapy and advice and now coming medications has sprung up all to wedge the cocks back into those women's vaginas. 
concurrently and meanwhile there are gay guys out there who are just not into anal penetration not into anal sex at all and there isn't a parallel industry in gay sex therapy land trying to jam cocks up their asses people are just like ah these are gay guys who prefer oral and mutual masturbation rolling around and role play and bdsm or whatever else it is and more power to them and those gay guys who aren't into anal at all probably shouldn't date gay guys who really require anal there wouldn't be a match so if your boyfriend really requires PIV, you're not a match. And however much you connected with him emotionally, if you're going to have a sexually exclusive relationship, you're not going to be a match. But there are guys out there who just want to eat pussy all day long. There are guys out there who would rather use a vibrator or engage in mutual masturbation than have PIV sex. Where PIV sex, as much as they enjoy it, is something that they could take or leave but what they really love is role play or elaborate fantasy scenarios or 69ing or whatever else it is. And you can go find one of those guys. Just like the guys who are gay, who aren't into anal at all. Go find guys who love oral above all other things or whatever else feet, whatever else it is that they prefer. So give the ex a ring. See how he feels. If it ain't him, there are guys out there that you are the perfect match for. Well, no, that's a lie. There aren't no perfect matches in the world, but there are guys out there who want what you're offering. And if your ex-boyfriend isn't one of them, go find one who is. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old bisexual female in a long-term monogamous relationship with a man. I'm also kind of a bigger girl um, in between a size 14 and 16. Um, I've always been big, so this isn't new to me. But I was at my lightest weight when I first started dating my partner, and I've slowly gained it all back since I've met him, which coincidentally was when I started grad school. So lots of stress eating, not a lot of time to go do a lot of exercising. And he's he's really great. He makes me feel sexy um, and is very supportive of me being happy with my body. But I am still self-conscious because my partner is pretty fit. We have really good sex, but lately when we have sex in any position other than missionary, my stomach will hit some other part of his or some other part of my body and make a loud noise. This is really distracting and never used to happen. And sometimes it causes me to not enjoy our sex as much because I'm too focused on whether or not he finds it or me gross in that moment. I'm working on my way. Um, I'm happy with how I look right now, but I would really love some advice on how to find a position that will allow allow for less noisy sex um, and maybe allow me to take my mind off of that embarrassing noise. On the one hand, you say that you are happy with uh, the person you are at the size that you are, and that's great. And I think you should be happy with the person you are at the size that you are. On the other hand, though, during sex, when you are reminded of the size that you are by this sound, you are pulled out of the sex. It is unsexy. So how happy are you with the person you are? How accepting are you of your size and your body? If when this aural cue occurs and you are reminded something to think about, right? I would hope that you could just get over it. Just embrace that sound. Sex includes a lot of flesh slapping together sounds. Even when everybody's 0% body fat and throwing themselves at each other, there's still going to be sounds of flesh slapping flesh. And guys are turned on by aural cues. Now, that word, A-U-R-A-L, of or relating to the ear or the sense of hearing is spelled aural, but it's pronounced oral. But I'm 
using oral now because if I say oral cues, people are going to think I mean oral sex. Men being turned on by the sounds of sex is one of the reasons that evolutionary biologists think that women are so loud or tend to be so loud when they climax, when they're having sex, when they come. They call it copulatory vocalization. Why do women moan and groan and scream and yell generally more than men do? Because it turns men on. It hurries men along actually. Some men need that aural stimulation. They need to hear those noises and sounds to get off. So – it might help if you could just shift your understanding of his pleasure in hearing your flesh slapping his body, slapping around, that that feedback is good for him, positive for him. It's a turn on for him and you need to lax into it, embrace it, accept it. Your other option in addition to or perhaps in place of getting more active, losing the weight is – foundation garments. There are a lot of people who are bigger who incorporate foundational garments into their sex play to hold things still. And you can do that. You can make that choice. Now, it sounds a little perhaps contradictory. I accept and love my body, but I'm going to cover it up to have sex. But some people are more comfortable with some things on. And some people whose bodies are bigger are more comfortable. A lot of women with larger breasts will keep their bras on during sex. They're just more comfortable with things under control and they will be less moving around and slapping around if you get some sexy bustier or corset that you feel really hot in that holds things steady for you at those times that you are not having sex in the missionary position. But I think your better option is letting those sounds happen and telling yourself that it is the body equivalent of copulatory vocalization, that your body is vocalizing for him in a way that he enjoys and you should just chill the fuck out about it. Dan, a comment on episode 470, the woman who had the terrible lap dance. Uh, one fact that you did not comment on was the fact that she had a male companion who had paid for the lap dance and who was with her in the room. Why didn't he intervene, and is it possible that he actually tipped the uh, lap dance deliverer to um, push her limits, uh, which is an even more egregious criminal act? Hey, Dan, I was calling about uh, episode 470 when the guy was saying that he got blackmailed from someone that had uh, found out about his Ashley Madison account. I got a similar email like that. Um, I had used a fake email address, and I don't check it very often, and I checked it, and I had like 15 or 20 of the same emails, and then it is a joke. It, don't, don't listen to it. That is a spam. They're just hoping to uh, you'll send money, uh, but that's not real. I hope that guy hadn't got himself in a deeper situation, but that is not real. Don't send the money. Don't do anything. Just delete Hi, Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Dan. I just got done listening to uh, your caller and Dan's advice about the uh, lactating breasts. And let me tell you, her husband is missing out. Uh, I had, I've had four children with my wife, and uh, she's really conservative and vanilla and it wasn't until our fourth child that she finally let me go at it and oh god was it good uh yeah he's 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 missing out that's what boobs are for 
and we're going to leave it there. We're going to leave it right there and slowly back out of the room. 206-302-2064 is the number. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Jen Gunter on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter. And follow Deborah So on Twitter at Deborah underscore So. Just in time for the holidays, we're going to do one of our family dynamic, family drama, family conflict advice extravaganzas. If you have a question about going home for the holidays and what you might be facing, give us a call 206-302-2064 and we may use it on our family drama show. Shout out to Emily Yofi, who after 10 years as Dear Prudence is leaving Slate for the Atlantic. Hello to Mallory Ortberg, who is taking over Prudence. Emily, you were terrific and one of our first guests on Second Opinion. And I really enjoyed your tenure as Dear Prudence, and we're going to miss you here in the Advice Racket. Mallory, welcome to the Advice Racket. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having